A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It's Wednesday, May the 12th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. The Dáil and Shannad are back in session this week, just in time for a big row over property funds buying up new homes and more of that later. Here to discuss that and many other things on the political agenda as the nation starts to move on from 14 months or more of non-stop COVID are Pat Leahy and Jack Horgan-Jones from our political team. Gentlemen, you're both welcome. Good morning, Hugh. Um, first of all, Pat, can I ask you... Is the sense that I get, and I think a lot of people get, that we are now finally really starting to to move on from COVID, that we might even accelerate the process of exiting from it, is that reflected in the political class this week? Very much so. Um, it would be a fool who would say we are now about to move on from COVID, but uh, I think we might be about to move on from COVID. And um, I mean, that assumes that the vaccine rollout continues to accelerate and there are some signs that it is. It also assumes that there is not going to be a sudden appearance of a variant of concern in Ireland which uh, could derail the reopening if it moved out into the community. But there is a very definite sense, I think, uh, in the not just the political class as such, but in at the top of government. And, you know, this is very evident. I think if you look at what people are saying this week, there is a real sense that politics is now moving on from COVID. And we have Michal Martin going into cabinet yesterday, uh, declaring that housing is now the number one issue for the government. It's the government's top priority. And this line was repeated several times throughout the day by ministers and spokespeople yesterday. And if you think of it, that has clearly only happened in the last week that COVID has ceased to be the government's number one priority. And it is predicated on none of those bad things that are referenced earlier happening. But uh, but politics is always essentially forward-looking. And and I think what is what we're seeing now is the focus of politics and the locus of political competition between government and opposition parties is moving on from COVID to, uh, to, to housing. And we might discuss a little bit what, what, what that actually means, particularly in relation to housing a little bit later. But first, Jack, um, in relation to COVID, you know, we are working to a framework which was laid out in late April um, by the government. Uh, it, it proposed a number of concrete things in May and then over the course of the first week in June, it was somewhat vaguer about what might follow after that. Um, is there any sense at all that some of the things that might have been suggested were going to be later in the summer, for example, international travel, um, indoor activities of one sort or another, might be pulled back to a little bit earlier in the year, given that the numbers of positive tests and the 
seeming absence of variance seem to show that things are going as well as could be hoped for. I think it's a, it's a resounding maybe to that. <laughs> the t- tail end of last week, I did pick up a little bit of this chatter uh, from people in government, kind of thinking out loud more than uh, more than anything else, just saying, "Oh, well, you know, a lot of the stuff that we had planned for July or later in the summer, and and this was more the domestic focus stuff that you that you referenced, the stuff like eating indoors. Perhaps that might become an end of June thing uh, as opposed to a start or middle of July thing." Uh, I I don't get the sense that that is a, a, a focus. Of, of much concentrated political attention at the moment. Um, and I think that on balance, uh, they would at the moment, while that might be tempting, I don't think they'd be overly tempted to go down that particular path. The reason being that they are pursuing a set of options which seem to be working um, and they are consolidating those gains. And I think that they would be loath to endanger that progress and they would also be equally loath to uh, risk another blow up with the National Public Health Emergency Team. We're in a, a funny position where since Christmas, everyone has more or less been on the same page and they've managed to keep on the same page, even as we go through the reopening process. So I don't think that it would be in anyone's interest for the sake of a couple of weeks, really, to uh, to, to kick off another one of these enormous rows that has characterised uh, the, the evolution of COVID policy over the next little while. I think perhaps there, there may be a little bit of movement on international travel, and I think that's a little bit out of our hands. Um, I think that when the digital green search, which is supposed to allow travel within the European Union by European Union citizens, when we get concrete proposals on that, which is supposed to happen at some stage next month, I think it might be hard to kind of hold back the tide on that. And that will interact with the expiry of the sunset clause on the mandatory hotel quarantine regime and any any changes that are brought in there. And also, uh, we may get some more inbound travel arising from European U- Union proposals to allow vaccinated people from outside the block more free entry. And that will be a bit of a lifeline for the tourism industry. For example, we could let, let vaccinated Americans in with with some less onerous form of of quarantine attached. So I think there could be a little bit of wiggle room on that. And 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 while the the government does see this kind of you know this this chink of light expanding, I think that cooler heads and calmer heads will prevail. And and a sense of we have what we hold, we are making progress. Let's continue down the same path. I think will will prevail. I'm struck by the fact, Pat, that mandatory hotel quarantine, which only a couple of weeks ago was a sort of a depicted as a hair on fire crisis, a disaster, wasn't working at all. Um, everything's gone quiet on that, which seems to be a sign that it's working. And also the fact that we haven't seen additional variants in the country seems to indicate that it may be working in regard to what it's supposed to be actually doing. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think the a lot of the reports that we heard a few weeks ago about oh the disaster that mandatory hotel quarantine had turned into were always somewhat overwrought. It seemed to me that the country flipped from a state of panic that we didn't have uh, mandatory hotel quarantine uh, almost overnight uh, to a state of panic that we did have it and that it was proving shock horror to inconvenience some people, which of course was always the purpose uh, of it to persuade them not to come uh, in in the first place. But I think it's kind of an example of how quickly we we are moving from the previous phase of COVID into the next phase, which is now coming upon us, which is 
you know, the the phase that takes account of the rising numbers of vaccinations, of the pretty near-term horizon of uh, most people in the country being vaccinated and what that will mean. And I think the pressure will come on that will come not just internally, but externally. I think the countries of the EU that, that, um, that rely on uh, tourism for uh, an awful lot of their uh, an awful lot of their income, especially during the summer months, they will insist on Europe being opened up. I think that was always likely to happen. And in a mass vaccination context, uh, absent any you know hiccups uh, or disasters with variants of concern, I think that is what is. Uh, I think that's what's likely to happen. So I think that those you know just as the restrictions. You know, I was talking to one person in uh, in government yesterday who was, you know, at the one time, you know, still very consciously trying to be cautious about the immediate future. But also uh, at the same time, there was, you know, sort of flashes of uh, of incredible optimism coming out of him as well about what the summer might look like. And Jack has referenced earlier what that might mean in terms of international travel. I think that is uh, that is correct. But you know what is happening now is that the the vaccination and therefore the change in the the disposition of the country vis-a-vis covid is accelerating and it is likely that that will continue yeah, and I think if you look at what's happening in the United States or or indeed in Israel or the United Kingdom, I think that's yeah, there's there, there's good grounds for that. That's not to say, Jack, that there aren't some logistical challenges ahead, particularly in relation to the vaccination program, particularly because of the constraints which are currently imposed on what cohorts of the population certain vaccines can be can be used on, and therefore what impact that has on the proposed very simple rollout based on age of. I got an email actually this morning to politics podcast at irishtimes.com from Pernilla Smith, who's asked why the government has decided to keep vaccinating only by age, even when restricting AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson to over 50s. She she suggested it make much more sense to vaccinate the over 50s in parallel uh, with the other two vaccines being rolled out for the 40 to 50 year olds. And that was something there was some talk about and then the government pulled back on it. Was it just seen as being too politically fraught? Uh, I think the problem is is to do with the delivery schedules, um, and 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 I think part of the problem is when we think about this, like our emailer uh, sent in, she makes good points, but also she it, it makes the mistake of presuming that all these levers are within the gift of the government to pull as and when they want levers around supply when things come in and also the regulatory picture of which vaccines we can use on who and when. It's not up to the government really, well, strictly speaking, it is up to the government um, to decide, you know, vaccine policy in concert with the HSE, but they do so under a kind of umbrella of advice from the National Immunisation Advisory Council, who are the ones at the moment saying don't give AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, uh, the single shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine to, to those under 50, except in very limited circumstances. And that's the latest bit of advice that we're waiting on from NIAC. It could drop as soon as today. It's supposed to drop at some stage this week. And if they allow the HSE to give uh, Johnson Johnson in particular to a cohort of people aged 45 to 50. It makes things a lot easier. It means that we can use a lot more of the 600,000 odd doses of J&J that are coming into the country between now and the end of June. And it makes it that little bit easier to hit the government's target of, of 82%. I, I tell you, it, it, that's 82% of people with a, with a first dose of vaccine, 55% of people totally vaccinated by the end of June. I'll tell you an interesting thing, though. I'm, I'm detecting an, an increasing amount of frustration uh 
from people involved in the fine detail of the vaccine rollout with this 82% target. Because they kind of say it, it's more or less an arbitrary political target that was based in February on rough estimates of how many people were willing to take it and how many vaccines were coming in. They say it doesn't really have any kind of epidemiological or clinical kind of hook to it. It's it's kind of meaningless in a lot of ways. And a lot of the, the benefits start to kind of accrue and gather momentum from around 50% and up. And they're a little bit frustrated that like, you know, the, the failure or success of the program will be judged by whether or not we hit this 82%. And just to, to kind of round that off, I think that the greatest marker of the success or otherwise of the vaccine program may not be whether we hit that 82% target or not. It may be whether people care if we miss it. Like it could be that we end up in a situation at the end of June where we miss it by a couple of weeks and everyone in the press kind of jumps up and down and says, oh, we've missed the target. And everyone in the, in the, in the wider population says, I don't particularly care. You know, my life is so much, is demonstrably so much better than it was a couple of months ago. And these gains seem to be consolidated and we're moving in the right direction. I don't care about hitting arbitrary numbers. I, I care that, that, you know, we are making progress and that these seem to be locked in now. So it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting point in the vaccine rollout. It all, it all does depend on, um, growing where we're at at the moment though as well we're at two hundred fifty thousand a week you know we need to get up to really four hundred thousand a week plus probably in june to to continue making those gains but like you know the the the, the step change i think that was vaunted for so long and promised for so long is in the process of occurring and i think that it is making that tangible real difference to people on the ground and that that is bubbling up to government and 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 informing that view that pat was talking about that you know possibilities are opening up and if not the end of the pandemic is beckoning certainly the end of the acute phase you know and and the arrival of a, a phase where it's more chronic more endemic brings a different set of policy challenges but it does it doesn't blot out the sun on everything else and that's what i think the next few months all things being equal provisos writers and so on notwithstanding that's what i think the next few months will be about I think that's absolutely that's absolutely true. But but one thing that is going on is this. I mean, relatively minor spat, I suppose, in the in the greater scheme of things. Or I'm not even sure it's a spat, but it seems to be a, a disagreement on the use of antigen testing. And this really came to light over the last week or so when a supermarket chain started offering these antigen tests, which are not as accurate as uh, as the PCP tests, which have been used here for the most part, but who, which many people think can have a role in controlling or stopping outbreaks occurring in workplaces, colleges perhaps in the autumn. And there's been a disagreement among um, the medical profession and the scientific profession about these, but there also seems to be a disagreement between Neffert and Tony Holohan on the one side and some ministers in government about whether these have a role to play. And in a way, it sort of goes back, doesn't it, to the whole critique of the Irish approach to covid that the only approach has been total lockdown as opposed to a more nuanced uh, and more sophisticated approach. Yeah, this has been bubbling away in recent days behind the scenes. We were reporting this morning that Tony Holohan had written a letter to Stephen Donnelly on uh, Monday night um, expressing his reservations about the use of uh, of of antigen testing. And, and actually, you know, I mean, it, you know, this isn't, 
so much one of those things that, you know, you have to read the runes and read between the lines and talk to people on background and so forth to find out what's happening behind closed doors. A lot, a lot of this is actually in full sight of the public. Tony Holohan and um, Philip Nolan from NEFET have come out and uh, made clear their reservations about the use of antigen tests. Uh, ministers, including the Minister for Health, have, you know, gone on the record uh, and said, uh, no, we are moving ahead with the use of antigen testing. I do detect some frustration about the slow pace of the rollout of antigen testing pilot uh, um, uh, uh, pilot programs in various uh, in various sectors. But um, but it is it is happening. It's been happening in meat plants. Some retailers want to use it, and manufacturers other manufacturers want to use it. And uh, and what ministers are saying is because as the reopening of society gathers pace and spreads out across the various sectors in society that are supervised or regulated by the various arms of government, minister individual ministers are looking at how they can get those sectors to for which they are responsible opened up as quickly as possible. And so, you know, in transport, airlines are looking at this. In, you know, the Minister for Arts and Culture, Catherine Martin, was talking about the use of these tests and how they might facilitate the, um, uh, you know, the reopening of sports events and cultural music events to crowds and so forth. So there is this pressure coming from across government on the use of this test. The government's position is quite clear. It wants to accelerate the use of these tests. It wants to spread them out, um, notwithstanding the objections by the public health, uh, by, by some of the people on the public health um, advisor uh, wing of the government. And so, you know, that it, it, it is quite, you know, it is, it, it's quite an open dispute, uh, if you like, and uh, government, you know, being the executive authority will presumably have its way on it. So let's move on to the real politics, which we're told is coming back on the agenda now. Um, and this current brouhaha over property funds buying up new houses, Jack, I mean, it blew up over a specific housing estate um, in Maynooth. You're a resident millennial, so you're supposedly the kind of person who's who's affected uh, who's affected most by this. He's our token millennial. He is indeed, yeah. I'm your older millennial. <laughs> Millennials are all getting pretty old themselves at, at this point. We need to get a you, you need to get a, a Generation Z person on the on the politics team there, Pat. Um, but for the moment, you'll have to do Jack. And this Maynooth housing estate being bought by the fund, to what extent is that representative of a real problem? And to what extent is it a really potent symbol of an entirely different and perhaps much bigger problem? Um, so a couple of things. Like, what's interesting is when I first saw this story, very good story broken by at the Business Post. Uh, I kind of thought that's an interesting story, but it happens all the time. Um, and you know, one of the main exits for property developers, whether they are building, uh, you know, high end luxury apartments in the middle of the Docklands, or whether they're building normal housing estates in the commuter belt, is now to sell up. To, uh, to an institutional investor who then in turn may sign long-term leases with uh, local authorities to provide these units as, as, as social housing in some instances. So what I, what I was struggling for for a little while was to kind of try and wrap my head around, you know, why this particular story seemed to light the blue touch paper. But I suppose it doesn't really matter uh, why, it, why it does. It matters that it did. And, and it moved 
um, the issue of housing right back center stage and, and knocked COVID off the front pages for we're now entering the second week of this story. Uh, so it's it's a not an insubstantial amount of time that is now occupied uh, political attention for. Um, so I think I think it means a couple of things. Uh, I think it means that the government is going to have to face up to some contradictions between its housing policy and the attitude towards housing investment of its different constituent parts, most notably Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, and the housing policy and the kind of financial property policy that it inherited from the last 10 years. So what do I mean by that? Um, I would see this kind of trend as a continuation of something that started around kind of 2012, 2013, when we invited short-term capital in the sh- in the shape of what no- became known as, as vulture funds in to help clear the state's involvement with toxic debt, to help buy big uh, books of loans secured on boomtime properties from NAMA and from other financial institutions. And that kind of morphed over the following years away from what was, you know, your traditional short-term investor vulture fund to someone who was still international capital, but was looking at, you know, property and housing and homes as an investment asset class. And that, and, and, and a lot of, uh, of government housing policy was kind of, I think, designed over the last decade to reverse engineer itself to, to, to the possibility that investors would come in and fund housing because that appetite was out there. Um, and we now have a situation where that credo has kind of been flipped on its head and who the government and who particular Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, wants to see buying homes are individuals and families and couples and he wants to return home ownership to the centre uh, 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 like we wanted to become the organizing principle of you know Irish adult life in a way that it hasn't been since like the Celtic Tiger and, uh, and earlier. So you have this kind of light switch moment, or you have this kind of this, this profound change in direction, and but it's not going to happen um, in the flick of a switch. Uh, it's it's very complex to try and undo all that has been done over the last ten years and replace it with a new model. But the government is having to do so because that blue touch paper was lit. In Maynooth. It's having to do so under tremendous pressure. It's having to execute and conceptualize of all these really complicated, uh, different, um, different kind of elements that are all interdependent and figure out a way to make this work at a time that it is absolutely front and center of the news agenda and do so in a period of a couple of weeks. And I think that's remarkably challenging. It's remarkably challenging. And I think that it is going to be, you know, it's going to be front and center for some time to come. And it's going to be really, really difficult for them to, to figure out a way out of it. Pat, do they not have themselves to blame for this? I mean, Pascal Donoghue made a robust defence of the of the financial policy which Jack has described there, which has been in place for for ten years, during which nearly all that time Pascal Donoghue has been involved in in that quite uh, quite centrally, and he argues uh, that 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 benefited the country in many ways. But there was always a point at which some of those incentives or very low tax rates should have been unwound, shouldn't they? And now that the government is scrambling to fix this problem. Would it not have been, and Captain Hindsight is a great thing, much better to start thinking about this three or four years ago? Well, of course it would, Hugh, but what public policy issue would it not have been better to start thinking of uh, four years ago? Um, I, I heard an interview with John Morn, who was the chair of the, um, the Land Development Agency, um, but also a former Secretary General of the Department of Finance, um, though an unusual Secretary General of the Department of Finance during the Michael Noonan period, uh, in that he uh, he came 
not from within the Department of Finance, uh, but from from outside it. And as such is, you know, a sort of an external, has always been a sort of an external voice or somebody who brings an external perspective. And he was talking about how, you know, he had wanted them after 2014, 2015, 2016 to begin unwinding the arrangements that had proved so advantageous to the uh, to the incoming investment funds, which had, in fairness, stabilised and put a, put the, the, the phrase is, put a floor under property prices uh, in Ireland at a time when there there uh, there didn't appear to be one. I think, though, you know, notwithstanding the storm and drang that we've had for the last week, I think what most people in both government and opposition would say that, you know, the problem isn't so much the involvement of investment funds in in property in Ireland uh, per se. I mean, even Sinn Féin says that, you know, you want pension funds investing in long-term residential uh, property to provide a stable supply of uh, of homes for people that will rent uh, long-term. The, the problem is the investment funds are swallowing up so much of the available capacity within, uh, within the system. And, you know, while certainly it wasn't by design that investment funds were in a position to buy up entire housing estates that would, you know, traditionally have been seen as a place where first-time buyers uh, would go. But there was nothing put in place to prevent them from doing so. So what I think the government is trying to juggle at the moment is, you know, under the cloud of, of you know, pretty thick political fire from the opposition, is it's, it's trying to tweak the involvement of the investment funds in property to direct it into particular sectors rather than to end it uh, entirely. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why it's going to take them some time to design that. I mean, last week, government were saying, yes, we'll have proposals next week for Cabinet. Very much the sense around the place after Cabinet yesterday was that this is going to take some time to do, maybe several days before the outline of proposals are made and some weeks beyond that before there's any legislative change to introduce it. Yes, indeed, Jack. And it's ripe with un- potential unintended consequences, isn't it, for all different parts of the the, the housing system, including cooperative and uh, non-profit groups which build social housing and affordable housing of different kinds. And those kinds of outcomes need to be... But I do wonder about this sort of differentiation which seems to underlie some of this between the traditional suburban or commuter housing estate which the dream of the first time home in the housing estate which needs to be uh, needs to be protected and far less discomfort with the idea of this kind of investment in uh, apartment blocks closer to urban centers and I was listening to, I think it was Jim Power, the, the economic uh, consultant, um, who was suggesting that this is partly because of the way these things are built, that with apartment blocks, you need to have all the money up front in order to build the thing before you start. Whereas he was saying that housing estates, as I understand it, are sort of built in fits and pieces, that you build a bit of them, then you sell 10 houses, and then you build the next houses, which seems a bit pre-modern to me as a way of as a way of running a housing strategy in the, in the 21st century. And I do wonder as well, is there a little bit still despite commitments to environmentalism, of a sense that the semi-detached in the suburb is the dream for everybody. And don't worry about what's happening in the apartment blocks because they're not for the people we're most worried about. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. And it's something that's almost taken as read on some level within, within the kind of policy sphere or with, certainly within the, the political world. You know, there seems to be this acceptance that, you know, it's all right for... 
uh, funds to, to buy up vast swathes of investment properties or, or build rent so long as they're in the middle of towns. Um, but because of the kind of special place for the three-bed semi within the Irish collective consciousness, uh, you know, it's important that we at least hold out the possibility of, of, of people, of punters, buying these somewhere, even if it is well beyond the M50 or well into the commuter belt of whatever city. And I think that does raise more profound questions. Like, So one, one, one of the things that the Department of, of Housing is, is apparently looking at is this idea that there will be density criteria attached to whether you could bulk buy. So like in more densely populated areas, it will be easier to bulk buy than in less densely populated areas. And and that would kind of ram home some of the kind of uh some of the kind of bifurcation that we've seen in in Irish property and also in other uh cities and other in other countries around the world where you have like, you know, very wealthy people and renters in the city centre and then, you know, just ordinary people outside city centres living in the commuter belt. And and how does that fit with all these highfalutin ideas, uh, particularly that are seen in, in, in the Green Party around like 15 minute cities and, you know, sustainable developments and sustainable urban communities? I'm not sure they, they meet very well. And that's another layer of complexity that has to be figured out under uh, a lot of pressure and in a very short time frame as we try and, you know, establish what, what housing policy is under this government and how it works from a planning perspective, from a tax perspective, and from an investment perspective. Something else that served to heighten this issue over the last uh, couple of days, Pat, is this report from the ESRI about the economic status or predicament of people who are now in that first-time buyer kind of demographic, people in their 20s, 30s and 40s, essentially. And the evidence that um, if you combine relatively stagnant um, wage increases with uh, soaring rents and rising house prices, they're worse off than their predecessors, than predecessor generations. That's a disaster for politicians in power if that idea takes hold. And it's, there are already signs that it's being reflected in the political views of those generations. Yeah, and it is uh, an issue that while it goes across economic stability and the type of changing structure of employment uh, and all of that, it is most acutely seen in that housing thing. But you're right, um, it it is, uh, you know, I mean, it is a political time bomb for the quote-unquote establishment parties. And you only have to look at the... You only have to look at the, you know, the demographic structure of political support. So you take the party that is most associated, you know, with, uh, with that the housing issue in terms of a, you know, criticism of government, which is uh, Sinn Fein. And I mean, I was looking at some numbers yesterday. There's a piece in the, uh, in in the paper today in the most recent Irish Times poll back in uh, February. The you know support is hugely weighted amongst younger cohorts towards uh, towards Sinn Fein. You know small numbers of uh, small numbers for Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael amongst the 18, 18 24 year olds, 24, 24 to thirty five year olds. Huge support for uh, for Sinn Fein. I think they were for between forty one forty five percent on those two uh, those two cohorts. So there is a real time political effect uh, on this in a broader sense. I suppose. You know, it's maybe not surprising that if the, you know, the the previous ideas of the social contract uh, that the, you know, the state 
the things that the state provided the opportunity for younger people as they grew up to, you know, maybe rent for a few years, then buy an affordable home, then buy, you know, then maybe trade up in, into that suburban ideal um, uh, when they, you know, when they settle down, have kids uh, or whatever. If that is no longer uh, all, all, you know, financed by stable employment in which people could reasonably expect their incomes to grow over a period uh, of time, thus enabling them to plan for the future. If that is disrupted, and it is disrupted, the numbers are very clear on this for uh, an entire cohort of the population, then their attachment to the not just the political norms of their parents' generation, but to the whole entire idea of the political structures that they have uh, inherited, I think that they are, um, uh, you know, I, I think that they are in danger. So, you know, I, I find it hard to overestimate the importance of this research during the week in, uh, in political terms. Isn't it funny, though, in some ways that like the, uh, the response now all of a sudden of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, the mainstream political parties is, is, dear God, can we please turn these people into homeowners who behave in the same kind of voting patterns the way homeowners have since the inception of the state? Can we please turn them into homeowners as soon as possible? Because rather than, you know, trying to address problems around making renting more attractive and sustainable long term and, you know, address things like, you know, the changing nature of work, that that that, that trying to revert to type and turn these people into old style Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael voters seems to be the the reflexive response. But it's not just, you know, turning them into Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael voters. You know, I, I think if you look a bit beyond that, you see the idea of if somebody is a property owner, you know, the property owning democracy, people have, a, a, a you know, a stake in the stability of society. Now, maybe that turns them into, uh, maybe that turns them into conservatives or turns them more conservative as they, uh, as they grow older. And I suppose uh, it would be surprising if the existing political establishment wasn't, uh, biased towards that particular outcome. What do you think about this idea of an emerging or a, or a deepening generational divide, Jack, as the token of millennial again? I mean, it is it is a thing we've seen in other countries, like very stark differences in the UK now, depending upon what age people are as to how they vote. Yeah, and, and where they live as well. Um, and you see that, as you, you cited the example of the UK, you see that in the fortunes of the Labour Party, where, you know, the tide has, has totally gone out for them. In the shires and, 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 well, I mean, they're probably never particularly popular in the shires, but certainly in, in working class towns in the north of England and so on. You know, they're, they're a spent political force. They're, you know, they're, they're the union organising structures that used to be the lifeblood of the Labour Party are gone. And where are they strong? They're, they're strong in, in, in cities and uh, millennials tend to concentrate in cities, you know. So I think that it, it, it absolutely is the case that a generational divide um, is present in you know, not just in Ireland, in, in, in advanced democracies across the world and will be one of the kind of organising principles, will be uh, one of the totem poles for politics going forward. And and addressing um, the concerns of uh, that younger generation, let's kind of broadly call them the, the, the under 40s, and convincing them, if you're coming from a mainstream perspective, that, you know, you have something in traditional politics to offer them a stake in society, that you can bring them on board is going to be absolutely key if 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 you know we aren't going to see a deepening of the the political divide that has emerged really over the last 10 years and more since the since the financial crisis my my money is 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 that the ship has largely sailed on that and that you know you'll see 
the the you'll see that th those divisions becoming further entrenched probably and uh, you'll see a kind of that kind of insider outsider dynamic becoming the, the the controlling one for politics in Ireland certainly for the next little while and 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 as covid recedes i think that's that's what's likely to happen and that's why we see issues like this just catapulting themselves right back into the center of the news agenda at the the moment covid is even like vaguely stabilized and one of the things that differentiates ireland from some of those other european countries pat is the fact that we do actually have a younger population. So, I mean, I've heard the, the British political scientist David Runciman talking about this generational divide and saying the tough thing for the, the younger people in, the, in that divide in the UK is there's more older people. There are fewer older people in Ireland and there are more people in those slightly younger demographics, all of which goes to my thesis about all this, which is that looking at the government right now, and there are no quick fixes, and there are fighting fires like the one that emerged this week, that on a political level, a politically self-interested level, the big play by Micheál Martin to take on the toughest government departments when he formed the government last year is going to explode in the face of Fianna Fáil and that this government will barely be able to take a chip off the block of the disaster that is the housing system at the moment in time for the next election. I think if the government doesn't make um, palpable progress in the on the housing issue and given the nature of house building and apartment block building being a, uh, a time-consuming operation, the building itself, as well as all the, you know, planning and uh, uh, et cetera that goes in advance of it. I think if the government don't make palpable progress on that, um, I think there would be enough blame to go around for everyone. But you're right, Fianna Fáil being in the front seat um, in housing in particular, um, can probably look forward to the lion's share of the blame. But I think that if you get to uh, if you if, if you get to a situation, and of course this is another argument as to, uh, which you know might be deployed by people within government uh, about ensuring that the government lasts as long as it possibly can. That only makes sense, of course, if you are making progress on the issue and you can demonstrate you know, that things, albeit slowly, are getting better. But if they are not getting better, as felt by people on the ground, and certainly there's no immediate prospect of that, I think. In fact, I think there's prospect of things getting worse for people on the ground than the government, I think, you know, in the into the autumn and next year, maybe looking back on the COVID period as a time when things were uh things were simple if 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 not exactly easy then at least uh then at least simple you know uh, i i think that's a significant danger for the government as we go ahead last thought on that a few years ago i was fond of saying you know that that housing is the new health and what i meant by that is that like it was a ridiculously complicated policy area that was always under public scrutiny that had a lot of different stakeholders and most importantly the policy actions taken by government took an awful long time to work their way through the system. You might make a change and you might not reasonably expect it to, to really make a difference for a couple of years hence. And I think what COVID has shown is that if the, if the challenge is big enough and all-consuming enough, you can sweep away obstacles and achieve meaningful mobilisation and change within complex policy areas like health quite quickly. And I think that's why... Very much we see uh, Michal Martin apparently giving this rallying call to Cabinet yesterday to consider housing 
as the state writ large has considered COVID and Brexit as fundamental, almost kind of quasi-existential threats that have to be and can only be confronted by a mass mobilisation of government. And that's the kind of, that's the swing for the fences attitude, I think, that has to be uh, be adopted on behalf of government if they're going to, if they're going to, you know, make this work because it is so complicated and so important. You need a kind of a, a visionary uh, and, and ambitious kind of sense of leadership around it. We shall leave it there for the moment. Uh, thanks to Pat and to Jack for joining us. Thanks also to our producer, Suzanne Brennan, and to JJ Vernon, our engineer. We're going to be back very soon, but remember you can mail us with your thoughts or your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.